0: All right, we are live once again, Renters Radio. It is the first day since the eviction moratorium has been expired, lifted, and the housing courts are now open so uh we have a lot to talk about we have a special guest state senator jamie eldridge in today calling in from my hometown of boxborough mass um representing middlesex and worcester district who has uh dropped a few new bills on uh, the housing issue as well as a uh, universal basic income so we're going to get right to it i'm also here with my co-host evan george as always
1: hello hello
0: and uh our fearless producer herb morsiglio made the news this weekend on ESPN, setting up Fenway.
1: ESPN, Fox, CNN. Made the rounds.
0: Herb is more famous than all of us. Shout out, shout out to Herb. So um, let's uh, get the phone line up. We got uh, State Senator Jamie Eldridge on the line. Can you hear us?
2: Yes. Hi, Lauren. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we tried to have you a couple weeks ago, but there was a COVID concern, so we're happy to be back. Um. This is kind of a Absolutely. strange time. Um, so it was funny. We were actually doing a show with uh, state rep, Mike Connolly, a couple weeks ago, and you announced mm-hmm. this uh, new bill in the Senate. The uh, hero with the Hero Coalition provide mm-hmm. three hundred million dollars in new revenue for climate resiliency and affordable housing. We have been pushing the COVID nineteen Housing Stability Act for the past you know summer month all, you know during all this time. Mm-hmm. How does this tie into that, and and what what is the uh, you know just talk a little bit about what this bill is that you've been pushing with uh, El Elguardo?
2: Absolutely, yeah. So the 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 HERO bill, which would uh, raise around three hundred million dollars in new revenue, um, half going to environmental resiliency or combating climate change, and half to affordable housing. Um, I think would complement. The Housing Stability Act, and and I want to be you know absolutely clear, um, we need to pass the Housing Stability Act. I'm I'm incredibly frustrated that um, the legislature did not take action uh, right. before the eviction moratorium expired this weekend, and I'm hoping you know we can still pass legislation, even though you know today the housing court you know began to to open to to consider um, older eviction uh, cases from before the the bill became law. Um but yeah the the this this bill um which is really I think an example of coalition building is you you have the um housing housing justice, social justice organizations um come together with the the climate justice groups um to create a new revenue source um that would go to both of these purposes and in terms of you know your question directly about how this could you know complement the Housing Stability Act, you know, a key piece of the Housing Stability Act is actually providing uh, money to small property owners to to pay their rent, um, or to provide a tax credit if they agree not to evict their tenants. And at a time when, you know, we've lost approximately $5 billion in revenue, we need to find, you know, revenue sources, but also make sure that revenue is progressive. And so, you know, the revenue source here, is it is a doubling of the, the deeds excise fee or deeds excise tax um, per thousand um, dollars of value of a house? So obviously, if you know someone is selling a million dollar house, um, there's going to be more revenue from that, and therefore, you know, I think it's a, a fairly progressive approach. And um, that approximately 150 million dollars right now on the housing side would go into uh, the affordable housing. Uh, Trust Fund, which builds affordable housing um, and the Housing Preservation and Stabilization Fund, which could be MRVP, which is the state Section 8 vouchers. Um, It could be, you know, rental assistance. And since Representative Iligardo and I filed the bill, um, we have gotten a push to say, well, what if some of that money was going to be dedicated to to RAFT or other forms of rental assistance? Since you're going to see. you know, some actions by landlords to evict tenants. So, you know, can we provide immediate infusion of, of of money, assuming this bill becomes law, into rental assistance so that a landlord, you know, doesn't initiate a uh, notice to quit or an act to evict the tenant? So, so that's what the bill does. Yeah, I can go into more detail, but that's that's the specific, it's sort of the basics of the, the bill and how it relates to the Housing Stability Act.
0: Yeah. So I mean, this this bill has been. It seems like how this bill was being worked on for a while, because you know we had a, a guest uh, on our show I, about a year ago um, that was, I guess, helping you work on this, uh, Michael Kane from the Mass mm-hmm. Alliance of HUD Tenants. Um, yes. So this has kind of been a, a longer process. Um, do you think that this is going to be able to? rectify the you know crisis that we're about to happen in any way or is this just a funding mechanism
2: this specific bill the the hero uh coalition bill which is its senate docket 3056 and house docket 5275 you know i i really just see it as a a supplement to what the legislature should do now and still can do is to um extend the eviction moratorium by legislation. Um, you know, perhaps do some some carve out. so it's you know focused just on uh, tenants that are impacted by by COVID, um, and also provide you know financial relief to 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 small property owners or, or landlords. So you know, I I see this as you know being a supplement to that, but part of a bigger discussion, which is a reminder of where where we began this session, which was. You know we were gonna pass a bold climate change bill. Um, the governor, you know, to his credit, you know filed a bill around climate resiliency um and we you know we could still pass a solid climate change bill. But I think this speaks to something that you know I think more and more environmental justice advocates are making the point is that you know housing justice, climate justice it's it's the same you know if if yes. you're if you're impacted by by flooding. By high, you know, asthma rates, uh, by you know, an incinerator being your neighborhood, then you know, that's going imp- to impugn your ability or affect your ability to live in in housing if you're having you know bad health outcomes, and so it's it's all connected, and so that's why we wanted to bring together these groups, and it's been you know it's been endorsed by well over 30 organizations from you know MACDC to 350 Mass to the Chinese progressive association to to your point the mass alliance of of HUD tenants um to you know clean water action and the smart growth alliance so this this has been a coalition effort and you know I was pleased to file representative Elgardo but the the advocates that I mentioned and many others they've they have been working on this for at least a year
0: yeah and and I do want to point out one uh just a little bit just one number here uh is that the DEED's excise fee on home purchases would be increased from $4.56 per $1,000 to $9.12 per $1,000. And that's not even very high.
2: Exactly. And one of the (laughs) things when I, you know, testify on on similar bills around affordable housing to, to legislative committees is that, look, if I, you know, if I'm middle class, if I'm upper middle class and you know, say the Acton box area where we grew up and where I represent now, you know, if if a if a couple has the money, has the financing to buy an eight hundred thousand dollar house and suddenly, you know, he or she or the couple have to pay, you know, another a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars, you know, let's let's be honest. The bank is going to finance that. That's right. not gonna be a burden, you know, to that couple. But, you know, if you if you think of, you know, the, the, the cascading effect of that, the multiplier effect of that, you know, um, across the state, and, and our estimate is it would raise around $300 million, you know, that's a dedicated revenue source that could um, reverse a lot of the cuts that have happened, you know, over the past 20 years to uh, housing vouchers, to, to rental assistance, to building affordable housing, which we really don't see enough of, especially in the suburbs.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, one of the criticisms of a lot of these bills is uh where will the money come from? Yep. <laughs> and so, <laughs> I was like, "Oh, hey, look, here's a solution, but I believe Evan has a question."
1: Hey, Jamie, Evan George yeah. I'm Lauren's uh trusty co-host. So, uh one of the Hello. things one of the things that I find very uh fascinating, especially about you filing this bill, is when we look at like the upcoming problems Massachusetts is anticipating on facing with climate change it is primarily going to be on the coast and I'm sure you're familiar the uh, there's something referred to as the trustees report um, a lot large group of landowners throughout the coast really just filed uh, this 40-page briefing saying that we need to do something about climate change now because of how much it affects especially coastal properties whether that's just uh, global sea level rise or also hurricanes and What I find fascinating is, you know, you are coming from just a little bit east of Worcester. And how susceptible do you think your constituency will be to an increase in property tax where, you know, thinking back, I think it was maybe six months ago, a very modest transfer fee tax uh, or just giving uh, communities the ability to pass the transfer fee tax was absolutely gutted in the statehouse. And so... If you wanted to speak to, um, do you think that this is something that uh, property owners across Massachusetts are going to get behind uh, doubling of their tax, or do you see this being a long term fight to get this bill through?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, certainly, my my hope is that you know, given that um, Senate and House leadership, you know, are are looking for possible revenue sources and are are recognizing the the housing crisis, you know, that we're going to have. That that they would see this as a source of revenue, um, because yeah, is it? It's certainly likely that property owners uh, or prospective property owners, you know, would would oppose this. Um, usually, it's the Greater Boston Real Estate Board, it's it's the corporate special interests that that still have a lot of influence at the State House that you know just immediately come out and oppose any you know tax or fee increase on. Real estate transactions, even if it's you know luxury tax or on high cost housing. Um, So, with respect to to property owners, I mean, I think what what is an interesting discussion, and I'm hoping will happen in part because we partnered with climate change groups on this. Is that, you know, I think that a lot of people in the suburbs, you know, a lot of homeowners are very active on you know taking action on climate change. Uh, The town of Acton at a special town meeting passed a Climate emergency resolution, and if you are upfront and talk about the fact that this is a very modest, you know, one-time increase uh, when someone purchases a home, you know, will they be comfortable? So long as that money is coming back to the community to combat climate resiliency and uh, to address affordable housing, which I, I will say, I think more and more people who are active on on racial justice and are, are protesting since the murder of George Floyd. Are, are recognizing that you know affordable housing and the segregation that's been you know built into the system into our zoning and housing laws especially in the suburbs um that if we're really serious about black lives matter and racial justice then we need to build more uh, multifamily or affordable housing in in the suburbs and really in every community
1: i absolutely agree and i think the strategy of linking uh climate change with housing is um very spot on, absolutely ties together these larger threats. And while we're normally known as a, um, a housing rights show, I'm g- going to get to dip into um, some more um, environmental policy stuff. So just so people can understand really where Massachusetts is at in terms of the threat of climate change, uh, just very briefly, I'm going to read from uh, the Better Future Project, where I think they uh, that's a group that you have collaborated mm-hmm. with before, uh, reading from a recent report. During the last century, Boston has sunk six to eight inches and it will sink another five to six inches in this century. Consequently, the change in relative sea levels is among the most rapid in the nation, with by 2050, the sea level rise could be another three feet in Boston, also along the Cape. And even these projections, uh, the Better Future Project is saying are might not be, uh, these projections are too low. This is not even the worst case scenario. One of my favorite, uh, well not favorite, memories when I was speaking against a housing project yeah. environmentalist was there talking about uh, the floodplain and then he said of course it could also rain that day and then the whole project's gone so a lot of these projections again are pretty low but my so my question to you with that is the threat that is kind of what Massachusetts is facing you said that uh, the funding 150 million dollars will be directed and correct me if I'm wrong to the uh, global warming solutions trust fund so uh, my question is in two parts one um, how does that fund operate and then two, will $150 million be enough?
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So yeah, the Global Warming uh, Solutions Trust Fund is, is administered by by the governor. An example where I, I think it's been a pretty successful uh, program by by the Baker Fleet administration is these uh, Municipal Vulnerability Preparedness Grants, MVP grants. And so they come from that. Uh, that fund. So it's it's overseen by the Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs. And so that money has gone to many communities across Massachusetts, including in my district, to do planning. So you have, you know, sort of the uh, more typical climate change activists, but they're sitting down with, you know, the fire chief or EMS or public health or the town manager and discussing, you know, well, what are the impacts since we know climate change is happening to taking care of seniors, uh, taking care of you know low-income families, um, to addressing you know things from flooding to heat waves that you know are already happening are only going to get worse because we haven't taken bold action even in Massachusetts. Um, so so yeah, so it's under you know it's under the executive branch, um, but it does provide this uh, source of funding that um, will will boost. You know that fund and you know then get into you know hopefully not just helping with planning but actually you know uh infrastructure uh building you know maybe improving public health um you know other actions uh that can you know really uh protect our communities from the worst impacts of of climate change um 150 million dollars a year is a good uh Good chunk of change to dedicate to a program. It's it's also you know not not enough. Um, you know, as an example, the town of Littleton that I represent, they just got a seven hundred fifty thousand dollar MVP grant to protect open space because if you um, if you're talking about reducing climate change, you know, there's a balanced approach towards development and preservation, and if we if we continue to just develop and cut down too many trees that's going to contribute to global warming so this will protect some land in Littleton um, but you know it doesn't doesn't go far enough but I think it's a good start and I think the fact that it's a dedicated revenue source is is really what's key and you know governor Baker proposed a similar tax just for climate resiliency but the fact that he proposed it you know I think shows that you know there's it's a it's a fairly common sense you know idea in the legislature to take a, a hard look at it
0: so, what is the uh, what are the projections for um, this bill? I've been, you know, reading lately in the Globe that uh, there's not much going on in the State House lately. Um, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. Mike Connolly on two weeks ago, and we've been out in the streets protesting uh, for the Ho- Housing Stability Act, and no movement there. Um, apparently, there haven't been many sessions. Uh, in the state house is at it, all, at least in the, in the house. So what are you, what, what's the timeline for this at this point?
2: Yes. Yes. And I, you know, read some of the globe stories over the weekend and I'm, I'm certainly very, you know, frustrated um, with what is not happening at, on Beacon Hill and, and really appreciate uh, reps and Mike Connolly's advocacy just been in the streets been you know, very vocal about, his bill and the need to take further action. I think what's important to, to remember is that, you know, as frustrating as it is, what the legislature is trying to get agreement on, and, and I don't know where the logjam is, um, is, you know, we've got a police reform bill that we really want to be strong. We, we do have a climate change bill, economic development, um, transportation bond bill, and a, and a housing bill on top of, you know, a revenue crisis and trying to figure out the budget. And I think, unfortunately, as frustrating as it is, until we get agreement on, you know, most or all of those conference committees, you're not gonna see other legislation come up. But the hope is that, you know, pr- perhaps right after the election, if we're able to pass those bills, you know, then are there other bills that we can take up? And, and since we do have that deficit, you know, that's where the hero coalition bill, you know, I think has a place. Right. Of you know, raising significant revenue and dedicating that to things like rental assistance, which are really needed right now with the end of the eviction moratorium.
1: And um, not to make you to answer the same question uh, twice, Jamie, but um, just <laughs> I, I'm going to right now just read from the Globe article because it is pretty funny. Um, in the two and a half Thanks months, a lot. I appreciate that. <laughs> in the two and a half months since they voted to expand their calendar amid the pandemic, Massachusetts lawmakers have not held a single formal session or roll call vote. There are major pieces of legislation, just like you outlined, uh, policing, transportation, healthcare, and more remain locked in secretive, closed-door talks. And on first glance, somebody might say, well, this is because from that end of July until now, People need to be campaigning. This is campaign season. We'll deal with it after the general. And of course, um, you know what I'm going to lead up to, which is, I believe it's close to 75 to 80% of Massachusetts lawmakers are not even in a contested race whatsoever. And so Mm -hmm. um, not to make you point fingers or anything, but just to try to um, explain it to uh, the the layman, um, how is it possible that uh, two and a half months and there hasn't been a single formal session?
2: Mm hmm. Well, part of it is a, a formal session just just means when we're taking a roll call vote on on a, on a quote unquote controversial bill. So you think about the police reform bill right. or climate change or um, say reproductive rights, um, immigration rights. Um, so we 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 are having sessions to pass you know non-controversial bills. But again, until we get those conference committees agreed upon, I, I think there was a sense. From the House and Senate leadership, that they weren't going to take up any other bills because of how that might impact the conference committee. Um, You know, I certainly never expected that we would do a comprehensive police reform bill. Um, It certainly should have gone further, but I actually think it's it's quite a strong strong bill, especially uh, showing my bias on the Senate side. Um, But until you know we get those done, um, I, I just don't think I think it would have created some imbalance if we had taken up. You know other bills, so it's it is frustrating. I I do want to say that you know we're all working very hard, mostly on constituent services. You know some projects or events in our districts, um, but you know most people aren't going to the state house because the state house is is closed and you know following public health guidelines. But you know everybody is working hard, but but there was a decision not to take up any uh, controversial bills until we we got these conference committee committees done, and I'm hoping they will pass soon after the election
1: okay uh fair enough I won't make you belabor it too much and uh you brought up the police <laughs> reform bill and you know that is something that has definitely been on everyone's minds from the months and months after um the George floyd killing until uh right now and so can you just uh give us a brief outline of what are the differences between the this, uh Senate and the house uh police reform bill and like what is this big debate point that they've been at for over two and a half months now.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and there are differences, although, you know, I, I am, I am pleased that uh, the components of each bill are, are mostly related. So you didn't, you know, you didn't have too many things that were uh, outside of the scope of, of what the house or or Senate did. So an example where I think both the house and Senate are on the same page is the um post uh police peace officer standards and training um legislation that that would for the first time ever create state licensing of police officers and then training uh uniform training um i completely acknowledge there's a lot of skepticism often backed up by studies that training a police won't make much of a difference but i do think it is important um in order for us to get to the Licensing and therefore the potential de-licensing of a police officer if a police officer has been proven to violate someone's civil rights or or break the law in in uh, mistreating a, a civilian. So that you know that is you know I think a a key piece of the bill. Um, use of force. You know both the House and Senate have language around use of force. Um, this this is an area where I commend the House is that you know around um, uh, the uh, chokehold. Uh, language is stronger in in the House than the Senate. a complete ban on on chokeholds in the House, whereas the Senate language is still creates an opening for police officers to use a chokehold if that officer uh, feels that his his uh, life is at at risk. Um, I disagree with you know what happened on the Senate side, but that's that was what passed but uh use of force, so you know uh, prohibiting a police officer from shooting at a civilian who is running away or resisting arrest, um, absolutely key to get that passed, uh, limitations on, on tear gas. Um, so those are areas where I think there's a lot of common ground. Um, the provision where there, there is a, a fairly big difference and there's been a lot of focus on this is the qualified immunity language. Uh, the bill that the Senate passed in the, in the broader legislation was a bill that came out of my committee, I chair the Judiciary Committee, that basically would reform the qualified immunity standard so that someone could more easily file a lawsuit if a police officer had, you know, beaten up or violated someone's civil rights or broken the law in interacting with the civilian and create a greater ability for for all of us uh, to file a lawsuit uh, against police officers. So I think that's really key to build accountability because if a police officer knows, That he or she, you know, or their town or city could incur significant financial penalties um, by not following the law, um, I think that's a a big accountability measure. And so, not to go too much into it, but basically, it it sets the standard that if a uh, reasonable uh, jury would uh, believe that the behavior of a police officer would not be a reasonable use of force, um, then qualified immunity would not apply. So in other words, the the, the protection for that police officer would, would not follow and, and therefore a lawsuit could uh, be more likely successful. The house side, the house, excuse me, passed a provision that said that if a, uh, only if a police officer is decertified as an officer, only then uh, can he or she have a lawsuit where qualified immunity Uh, is reduced. And so, you know, I I do think that that's um, not as strong as it should be. You know, I I think that, you know, the the certification process will already be long enough, and that's going to delay just potential justice by by someone who's been been hurt or impacted by a police officer. So I do hope the Senate language prevails. I know groups like the ACLU um, and the NAACP have been, you know, very active in support of the, the Senate provision. Each bill is, you know, well over hundred pages. So that, you know, that's a, a bit of a summary. Um, just an example of where, you know, I see law enforcement crossing over to prisons and this was an amendment that I filed that did pass in the Senate bill is um, a provision that if a police officer is decertified by the state, that he or she cannot become a correction officer. Because the last thing we want to see is a disgraced police officer just you know going down the street and suddenly working at a state prison or a county county uh, prison. So uh, that provision is in the Senate bill. So that's where there you know there are some differences between the House and Senate, and hopefully the stronger provisions of each each bill can be in the final conference committee report.
0: yeah, I, I thank you for clarifying the differences here. I do want to thank you as well for that provision about um, the police not being, you know, dis- mm-hmm. disqualified from, uh, being, uh, you know, CEOs at prisons, um, that will impact a lot of people. And that is, uh, you know, you've been known for going to help prisoners, at least in, you know, Middlesex district, uh, uh, and, mm-hmm. and visiting. And, you know, you've been really leading the charge on this sort of accountability in prisons. And that, that means a lot to a lot of people that I work with and speak with. Um, so I want to thank you for that. I also wanted to, uh, to bring up the, uh, you know, the, uh, remember, I, I know I had you on the young jerks a few years ago. We talked about, uh, yes. we talked about, um, asset forfeiture, whatever happened yes. to that. <laughs> Not to segue too long. Whatever happened to that? Remember that?
2: Yep. And, <laughs> and actually I had initially proposed that as an amendment, uh, to, to the bill, um, but it, it just was seen as sort of going a little too far away from sort of strict uh, police uh, uh, abuses, if you will. Yep. So uh, it did not pass in the Senate bill. Yep. The fight but, goes um, on. Huh? I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, you know the Judiciary Committee is is still looking at the bill. Um, you know, I I do think you know you're you're seeing the impact of more. Progressive prosecutors like Rachel Rollins, like Andrew Harrington, um, you know having an impact on these discussions, um, and I, I just think this is an area where uh, there needs to be you know more advocacy um, on this kind of bill and seeing the impact that it has on on so many individuals that you know are, are, are innocent, but their their property is is taken away or can never be returned
1: right. And, um, Jamie, you brought up advocacy, and uh, something that I talk a a lot about um, is how we are being out-organized on almost every issue, but particularly um, the police reform bill. And there was a report in the Herald a few weeks ago stating that for every one call a legislator receives in favor of police reform, they are receiving five calls against it. And you see a lot of ads being taken out, especially in the Boston Herald by uh, police unions and allies telling people, uh, call your legislator, vote no on this police reform uh, garbage. And now while I think that the measures in it are nowhere close to adequate, I would absolutely rather have them than not have them. And so I have been calling my representatives uh, to ask them to support this bill. And so I'm just curious, um, what are you hearing from your constituents? Are you hearing a lot of people asking you to promote to pass this bill? Or are you hearing people who Blue Lives Matter, we don't, we, blue. Don't, we don't want any of this reform stuff? What do you mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think what's really interesting is that um, on, on a positive side, and this was in reaction to, you know, a lot of us calling on progressive groups to to call their legislators, because I, I think the dynamic, which which I know you guys get, is that, you know, on any bill is it, it's, it's always, it's often uh, the, the opponents, those who are, who are angry or upset or opposed to a bill that are more vocal than those who are, who are for it. And I think that happened in the beginning uh, where, you know, police officers, police chiefs, police unions, and, you know, more often than not, more conservative voters, you know, were very vocal. Um, But I think, I actually think that the, the support has really, has been an outpouring of support really, you know, in August and in September. So I, I think that legislators feel supported, but I think what's interesting is that there were legislators that were very much closely aligned with police officers or, or police unions um, who voted for the police reform bill. And the, the police unions, the many police officers have been just absolutely over the top in their in their opposition.
0: Yeah.
2: Um my my favorite example is <clears throat> I won't name the district but a police union endorsed a progressive challenger to an incumbent because the incumbent had voted for the police reform bill even though I know that the challenger would have been in support of even stronger police reform. <laughs> so um so it just you know I was fascinated by that decision by that police union but um but I think that, you know, that is what's been difficult for a number of legislators um, is that they have these ties to police officers and, and suddenly the police officers, you know, have been you know quite vocal in their disapproval. And unfortunately, it's very frustrating, but even a vocal minority in the legislature somehow has a greater impact, even though a majority, you know, support these things, not to mention that the public I think you know strongly supports these reforms. So, so I don't know if I totally answered your question, but I think that's the dynamic. But I, I do think that legislators are feeling supported now, and quite honestly, a lot of us, um, we want to we want to take this vote, you know, now and, and get this done and get this, you know, these reforms implemented instead of it being, you know, hung out there. And you know, once in a while, there will be you know a Blue Lives Matter or a Back to Blue rally, including in, you know, the sort of Acton-Westford-Concord area.
1: Oh, yeah. Been a couple.
2: <laughs> yep. Yeah.
1: And, and um, so you brought up, and uh, thank you for clarifying that, uh, that did answer my question. And I, I have a larger uh, question, but I'd like to save those for the end, because something, and again, I've we've already uh, discussed it, is many people's frustration of what appears to be um a majority of legislators are co-signing the bill are saying that they would support it. Uh, I guess the a quick question, a quick clarification. Uh for the police reform bill in terms of how it initially passed both the Senate and the House. Did those uh pass by razor thin margins or was there pretty substantial support?
2: Mhm. They they did yeah, they they passed um they of course passed both the house and senate but very close to the two-thirds majority to override the governor's veto and i i would say that there was stronger support in the senate i think the house there there was some surprise that a number of state representatives that were perceived as being very progressive but really felt because of their districts they had to vote no and so I, I would say definitely that is having an impact on the House side with, um you know, with with the level of support of the bill and a, and a fear of, you know, what will happen when the bill is finalized. And, you know, what would the governor do to it? Because although I have generally found the governor to be very supportive of, of police reform, um you know, given that he is Republican, given that, you know, he has the backing of a lot of the. Uh, Correction officer unions or police officer unions, you know, will he feel pressured to veto it or, or send it back with with language? And that's, you know, very frustrating. And that's where the advocacy for you know to every single legislator is so critical to make sure we we get that two thirds to override the governor's veto if if need be.
0: You know, I actually have a point to add about that about the correctional officers union. Um, since you brought that up, uh, I was at a rally to changed the uh mascot of the uh you know Massachusetts mass uh the flag
2: at a yep. you know indigenous mm-hmm. people's yep. rally
0: and the uh blue lives matter people showed up along with the landlords it was a very strange day that were protesting <laughs> the eviction moratorium it was a very strange day and uh actually the uh head of the uh, correctional officers union had asked his I I spoke with somebody um who was there because his union leader had asked him to go support this and he showed up to this rally took a paid day off and showed up and realized mm-hmm. that he was at a Trump rally that was mm-hmm. disrupting indigenous people that were mm-hmm. trying to have their own rally there and it was violent it was it was you know it was ridiculous and uh so i mean there's certainly you know when you bring up that you know maybe maybe uh governor baker does want to push these things but there are people in power in these you know correctional officers police unions that are actually sending out their people to protest or to, you know, call, to write. And then they don't actually, when they show up, they real like, he was embarrassed. He's like, I didn't show up for a Trump rally. Somebody showed up to have me protest this bill because, you know, it was a qualified immunity one. It was S-2800 or, or I forget the, the number exactly. It was, you know, it was in, mm-hmm. back, in, uh, back in July. And he was like, I feel bamboozled by my union leader mm-hmm. to be here. Mm-hmm. But he's you know, they were having them all call the governor, call their representative, and it feels, you know, uh, you know, even even some of the, I guess, the rank and file of these unions have felt bamboozled by that. Um, and so I don't know whether uh Governor Baker realizes that or whether Marty Walsh realizes that when this is going on. I, I would hope he would. I don't he never listens to me when I try to call um uh, or go to his house. <laughs> but you know, uh it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. something that we've been seeing, you know, throughout the summer. And I would hope that, you know, enough people would be calling that would kind of, you know, kind of a, uh, I guess a uh, mm-hmm. buffer that impact of that. Uh, it was, it was pretty alarming. He's like, I didn't even want to be showing up for this. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. And he, I,
2: and I think that, you know, one, you know talking about the governor, I mean, um, you know, I'd be the first to acknowledge in, you know, some areas he's, a moderate even though you know those aren't are my views but but really one area where he really has um been just very conservative and, and i lauren i know that you follow this very closely is is criminal justice reform is right. that you know is, is the within days of the criminal justice reform being signed by the governor in 2018 you know he had filed a bill uh to change that uh there's a dangerousness. Uh, hearing bill that's still in my committee that uh, the EOPS Secretary Turco has been lobbying for. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that his rigidity on, on uh, being against prison reform or criminal justice reform doesn't extend to police reform. And, and so far, I, I would say <clears throat> it hasn't. But, but I am concerned because of the connections between, you know, a lot of those entities or, or professions.
0: Yeah, it's some sort of like, you know, uh, they get their numbers to, I guess, try to sway people. Whereas, you know, the the left doesn't work. I don't know have maybe not as many of us call. I don't know. They were they, they scare me, man. I see them all the time. So <laughs> that's that's what I'm trying to say. But I would hope I would hope that that will be passed as well. That dangerous. Is, I mean, we got to get people out of those death traps. But I'm sure Evan has a question. <laughs> uh, of course.
1: Um, so we've been talking yep. a lot about the governor. And maybe this seems to be the theme of the interview, but something that a lot of us um, get frustrated at is that we have uh, the Democratic Party here in Massachusetts two supermajorities in both houses. I think in the Senate it's a 36 to four split. I mean, the the, uh, Massachusetts uh, Democratic Party can basically do whatever it wants, and it it feels on the outside that what the state house normally does is it waits and waits, delays and delays. And then waits to see, well, what will Charlie Baker do? And then will that be sufficient? Will this calm down any noise or cries? Right. And you can maybe even argue that is what is occurring with the uh, police reform bill. Let's see what happens in Boston. Let's see how Marty Walsh negotiates with the Mm -hmm. unions. And then we'll make our, our response. And so a big question that a lot of people have once they start getting into local politics in Massachusetts is what is the Massachusetts Democratic Party doing where you have... Two supermajorities. It doesn't matter what Charlie Baker does. You can overrule a veto, and this mm-hmm. is a very this is a very large question. And you can take it any way you want. But what mm-hmm. is the platform? What is the vision for Massachusetts that the Massachusetts Democratic Party has? Because they could do whatever they want, and it appears like they're doing nothing.
2: Mm-hmm. So the, the focus on the the Democratic Party. I mean, I I think that. Um, And I I serve as a as a state committee member is that, you know, first of all, it's important to remember that, you know, at the end of the day, the mass democratic party, you know, by its its mission is to elect more Democrats. And although we do have a very progressive platform, there's no requirement that Democratic candidates follow or agree with the platform. And so therefore, one of the discussions that I often have with progressives is just electing more Democrats doesn't necessarily mean that you'll create more democratic or progressive policy because, you know, a number of Democrats who are elected are more conservative and in some cases could be, you know, considered Republicans in other states. And so, um, you know, what control does the party have on that? Um, There has been a big push to say, well, a democratic candidate in in order to be supported by the party should have to agree with or follow or, or vote for X percent of the party platform, say 70 percent, unfortunately, the committee that was working on that, their proposal was just 50 percent of the platform. And so that basically means that, you know, virtually anyone, a Democratic candidate, you know, is, is going to get the support of the party. So that's, you know, that's where I do disagree with the party's approach. Um, in defense of the mass Democratic Party, I think that you know most legislators, most democratic elected officials we we have our our campaign fundraising base, we have our volunteer base separately for the party, and so I do think a lot of democratic elected officials say well what is you know what is the party really doing for me um and that's where you know I do think the party needs to be more robust in reaching out to you know younger people to more communities of color and really diversifying the base and then you know, using that base to to sort of highlight what the party platform is, and and what you know what we expect of, of Beacon Hill or other Democratic elected officials. So, um, so I, I I do wish the party you know did more. I don't think they have a lot of you know power now, um, but I, I I think it's 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 more you know pressing Democratic elected officials. You know, w- what are you doing on? on these issues. And, you know, I, I, I'm certainly seeing a lot of pressure around the eviction moratorium because, you know, suddenly that's affecting families. And, and I hope that pressure, you know, creates some change on, on Beacon Hill.
0: Yeah, me too. I'm I'm very concerned for uh, what's going to happen this week when these notices to quit go out with this housing court. Uh, I want to get to UBI so bad, but I know you're also in the head of the Judiciary Committee and you have sit in on housing court stuff. Have you seen what's happened today?
2: I have not. I I do. I do participate in the trial court um, eviction stakeholder uh, sort of advisory committee. So this is Chief Justice Kerry. Um, Previously was Chief Justice Gantz, who who tragically passed away a few weeks ago and was just an amazing advocate for social justice. So, you know, they are or the governor is, you know, they're recalling or hiring more retired judges to process, you know, all these notices to quit or eviction, uh, summons, um, very, very concerning. And, you know, I, I, I know it's difficult for these families or individuals, but there's gotta be a way to tell those stories to legislators, because I think, you know, until we're hearing those stories, I think a lot of legislators, you know, are not going to feel, uh, pressured or motivated to, to act.
0: Absolutely. Um I guess there's a lot of uh, folks on the ground and uh, organizations working on that that we've been working with, City life Theater Urbana, Homes for All. You've been doing that, you know, working with groups as well. Um I am afraid that we just have too much to do and too little time uh personally, <laughs> but um hopefully just everybody just stays put and fights those notices to quit and that
2: something. Will on absolutely and we we can't
0: just
2: (laughs) it is and we can't just pin all our all our hopes on um you know the presidency changing or you know taking back the the Senate is we're we're Massachusetts and you know often my colleagues are are criticizing that nothing gets done by the federal government and yet right now you know we're pinning our hopes on the federal government and hopefully another stimulus when you know we could take action right now.
0: Right. Yeah, we should be the example for the rest of the country.
1: Um, well, now that we're talking about stimulus, yeah. uh, I'm looking at your house bill here, 1632, uh, about a, an act relative to universal basic income. That's right. And mm-hmm. I, I, I know the particulars, but for fun, when will you be mailing me my $1,200 check?
2: <laughs> well, it's even better. It's $1,000 a month, so just send me your address.
1: <laughs> and uh, <laughs> am I correct that this is just a pilot program?
2: It is a pilot program. So it would be three communities, a hundred households in each community would get a thousand dollars per month uh, for three years. Um, and then, you know, it would be, be a study. Now, when I filed this bill, you know, January, 2019, it was seen, I wouldn't call it radical, but it was seen as sort of like, oh, wow, this is a, a really interesting approach. Yeah. Now in the past two years, you know, whether because of Andrew Yang running for president or, you know, just the movement growing. And, you know, Lauren was with you at the, the, the guaranteed minimum income rally in, in Boston is, I think the movement is really, really taken off. Um, there's a pilot in Chelsea that I guess is starting this week. So, so yeah, so that's, that's really growing. And um, so, yeah, so my, you know, my pilot is, is fairly modest and, you know, I would love to see this, you know, scaled up for, for the state or the nation, but it's really exciting. And I actually interviewed um, a young mother this morning with with two kids who, you know, has a job working for a nonprofit. She receives a housing voucher, and you know, just talking about the choices she has to make um, in order to pay the rent and pay her expenses, and even just having, you know, for her, she said even just four hundred dollars more a month would make her much more economically secure. So. You know, if everyone got that, imagine the impact that would have. Not to mention the the impact on the economy as a whole.
1: And uh, something that I know we saw through the um, the last six to nine months during COVID was one of the largest reductions in poverty in, uh, across the country was uh, reduced. Uh, the greatest reduction of poverty in that time frame was a direct result because of the stimulus, because of the extra uh, six hundred dollars, I believe, um, additional to mm-hmm. unemployment and so i have absolutely no doubt that the outcome and i very hope uh, this bill passes that the outcome of this study as well as the one at chelsea is this is a monumental game changer to the families that get it that this (laughs) will have health ramifications for them and their children will increase their livelihoods for honestly decades to come even if it is just for a few years and so i'm all behind that i was very critical of Yeah, you were of Andrew Yang's proposal, (laughs) mostly um, (laughs) mostly because uh, one, it needed to be deficit neutral, which is for the people out there just simply means that either this it will be paid for by an increase in taxes or a cut in services. And when I normally hear that second part, I get a little bit nervous. Mm. And um, a lot of people kind of saw this as like a bank shot of here's how we can make cuts to Social Security, here's how we can stop making cuts to Medicaid, Medicaid, uh, Medicare, let's give them some money up front, cut the services, and then we can always just roll back that stipend. So people like me got a little nervous. Um, It seems that Mm -hmm. even at the federal level, they've changed their thinking on this, and by that I just mean like Andrew Yang and some people. Uh, my question for you is that the federal government, they obviously have a lot more economic tools that we don't here have here in Massachusetts. We, we don't have the money machine. we can't use um, any sort of MMT theory to uh, finance this. So my question for you is, let's say you study successful, they want you to write a bill uh, making this across the entire Commonwealth. How do you envision uh, paying for it, and what will that look like? What would your plan for Massachusetts be? And of course, I know this is uh, years out in the future.
2: Absolutely, yeah and and be the first to say that you know certainly it it uh in terms of you know stimulus spending or just the the ability to uh perhaps raise you know more money the federal government you know is better able to do that but you know you're you're seeing uh models of UBI in uh european countries some of the Scandinavian countries that you know has yeah. a population you know basically the same as massachusetts so you know, is it, you know, a tax on the wealthy? Um, You know, I always look at some of the corporate tax breaks that we give out that, you know, benefit a select few. Um, And, and then, you know, using that revenue to dedicate to UBI. So it's certainly complicated. And I certainly don't support, you know, cutting benefits. And, you know, the young woman I interviewed this morning, I mean, she's saying she's getting all these, benefits. So c- certainly, you know, she's saying on top of that, you know, if I had this four hundred dollars a month, then you know, I'd be more secure. So I want to be, you know, clear on that. But um but no, I, I I think that, you know, we have one of the richest states in the country. There are ways to raise taxes on the wealthy. There are companies, you know, like Amazon that are doing extremely well um during the <laughs> pandemic. So there's ways to to fund this and uh provide more economic security for, for all people across the state.
0: So, tax the Rich? That. That, normally, yep.
1: that normally always seems to be the uh, my ending point.
0: Uh, yeah, I know. Um, all right, so let's go into that a little more, actually, because I was very, you know, I really was moved by a lot of the speakers. I also wrote off UBI. I mean, I actually, you know, having been involved with the Pirate Party, this was an idea people had put forward before. But, you know, Andrew Yang, you know, when it was somebody running for, for office, I guess uh, a lot of people discredited it or kind of wrote it off uh my coast included but um <laughs> wh- what do you see as the you know do you see this as a viable thing to work towards in massachusetts i'm very excited for the chelsea pilot and 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 do you do you see this like what do you see mm-hmm. as you know once again the timeline for this actually becoming something that the the democrats or the left or whatever we are I- embraces and takes on as a cause it's you know
2: Hmm yeah i mean i i think that it is going to take you know quite honestly at least a couple years of of organizing um obviously we need someone different you know in the <clears throat> in the governor's office but um but i think that uh i think that support is <clears throat> growing and, and maybe it starts with just targeting it to um economically vulnerable families now that's obviously not you know pure. UBI or guaranteed minimum right. income, but is that is that how we show excuse me the difference um that it can make in people's lives and then you know once it becomes universal <clears throat> um showing the support it has from the of the public. So I think it's I think it's too early, but you know, I think that this pilot in Chelsea is great. Um I've written about it a little bit, um much more I think modest, but uh, I did work in my district with the a Boston, Boston-based foundation that uh, helped a church in Hudson of mostly Brazilian immigrants, and they every member of that church got $500 uh, back in June. And, you know, it obviously is not the, the same as is, uh, something per month, but for them, it really meant a lot to many of the immigrants. Mo- most of them were not eligible for either unemployment or the stimulus. Right. Because their legal status, you know, getting something uh, from a foundation. So and it was just very, very popular. So I think, you know, I think that, uh, again, you know, when I did the interview this morning, one of the things that came up, which I didn't even ask about uh, from this uh, young mother is is just the how she feels treated by the different, you know hoops and barriers she has to go through to receive, you know, public assistance and how different that is from, you know, the concept of just getting a check in the mail. And, and it, it is, it is a much more dignified approach to providing financial support to vulnerable families.
0: Right. And that is actually a a huge community in Acton, Boxborough, and, 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 and your district, um, you know, uh, Mm the, a large uh, Brazilian immigrant, uh, American immigrant population. Um, And uh, it's awesome that you did that study. I wonder when they do these studies, like even in Chelsea right now, like what are they, what are the metrics? What are they studying? Are they like making everybody keep track of what they spend it on? Or are they like, what is the study testing when they call it a pilot study?
2: Yeah, I I wish I knew. I mean, I've certainly (laughs) followed, followed what, um, the stocks in California, you know, mayor has done. And I know that they tracked, you know, where that money was going and it was going, you know, for food, it was going for rent. So, right. you know, it was, it was going for, <clears throat> you know, the, the expenses that that we all have and nothing, you know, quote unquote outlandish. Um, right. But yeah, I'd be interested to see what the metrics are.
0: Yeah. And then also um, one of my concerns also as renters radio and as a housing activist, is that how, let's say tomorrow we pass, UBI for everybody. And we all have an extra thousand dollars a month to spend. What happens when all that goes, like, how do we stop that from going into our landlord's pockets? Like what do we have to do first?
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Well, it's, if you know, I mean, um, certainly at, at this moment, you know, if people are behind on rent. Uh, I guess it's, you know, not, not too much of a concern for me, but, um, but I, I, you know, sort of, I guess the bigger picture, which we started talking about at the beginning is just, you know, how are we building more affordable housing? You know, how are we preventing, you know, landlords from raising rent? Um, and, and just the, the system that, you know, just perpetuates um, landowners, especially, you know, large landowners from just becoming more and more wealthy and uh and and more and more working families um paying more and more of their income just uh just for rent
0: right so would you be mm-hmm. uh i know that before covid uh you know uh Mike Connolly as well as others were working on a you lifting the ban on rent control um you were behind that right mm-hmm.
2: yeah yes i su- support that um it I'm trying to think if it got out of committee or not i'm not I'm, i can't quite remember how how.
1: No, um, it ended up being right. voted on. There was a floor vote, and it got um destroyed. And t- like I think ninety percent of um the House anyway went the other way. Uh, so it, it did end up getting a vote, and even um representatives from like uh very poor neighborhoods. Uh, my state rep, for example, voted no against it. So
0: Dan uh, Dancina voted for. Well, I don't know if he was elected yet at that point. I got to have him um, on sometime. He's voted the right way. <laughs> and um,
2: yeah, I, I've I've uh you know been a strong mentor for him, so I think he's doing a yeah. great job. Yep.
1: Yeah. Uh, Jamie, I have a quick question for you. Um, it seems like the, um, the House of Representatives gets a lot more press, gets a lot more it's attention true. than the Senate. And I know they have a number differential, but then again, you could argue on um, the federal level, everyone knows how powerful the, um, the U.S. Senate is and what it can do. Um, do you have any speculation? Why is it that we all focus so much more on the House side of things, and not the Senate?
2: yeah well I, I i think the senate gets a lot of coverage as well and you know we we took the first stab at the police reform bill um but um you know i i do think that the house still tends to be a little more you know centralized and so therefore um you know speaker de leo perhaps you know just feels more comfortable to speak as the voice of the house right. versus the the senate which tends to be you know more decentralized so i don't I don't know if it's it's that i i think that sometimes the the media um i think wrongly uh assumes that you know more of the power is in the house because you know if you look at the joint committees because there's more state reps and state senators you know every joint committee has more state reps and that can influence you know whether a bill gets out of committee or not um so you know i i I don't exactly know but um but no i'm i am grateful for uh Senate President Spilka and you know her her focus on empowering the the members and you know focusing on bills that that we're championing and um, maybe the effect of that is perhaps the media doesn't you know cover the Senate as well so yeah,
0: maybe it's just more chill without the Leo there we can all just blame DeLeo. Right. that's what I usually do um, <laughs> so uh, you know I, we don't have too much time left I do want to you know get into a little bit of the uh, you know one of the things that i have always loved about you is the fact that you go to prison like you i mean not go to prison but you go visit <laughs> prisons and you've been advocating for the rights of people who are incarcerated mm-hmm. for many many years before it was cool let's call it that so i mean what 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 what's the most recent updates on what's going on there i know that you are working on uh, advocating for the uh, no cost calls
2: Mhm yes we had another it's been a it, for I don't know if it'll change because of the weather, but it was it was a series of very powerful rallies. First, the, the universal basic income. And then I think the next weekend, it was the no no cost cause calls rally, which I spoke at. And then there was a driver's license rally. Oh,
1: yeah.
2: Um, but, yeah, the no cost calls bill. And that was something that the Senate was poised to take up uh, before the end of July. And then uh, very frustratingly, uh, many sheriffs uh, called and made the argument that, uh, they received, you know, revenue from those calls from the, the private companies that, that process the calls and that money went to programming and therefore they, they opposed it. And I was just, you know, very disappointed about that. Um, look, if the state needs to better fund programs as it should, then let's have that conversation. But the idea that, you know, calls from loved ones to, uh, you know, family members would be uh, bearing the burden of that uh, to fund, you know, programming or allegedly fund programming. I I thought the, that. I was mean, there hasn't really been
0: programming since COVID, right? Let's be honest.
2: No, and, and I <laughs> I think there's, you know, I certainly when I go to Susan or MCI Shirley, I I think the programming is 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 already quite quite limited and underwhelming. So I I think it's it's an exaggeration to say there's robust programming in any right state prison or county county jail um so yeah so we're you know there is a push for the senate to still pass it you know that's a bill in my opinion that could pass after uh the election you know when we're coming back to vote on conference committee bills so you know that's that's what i'm hopeful i don't i don't know about it. its chances on the um on the house side but but the organizing on that has been very powerful, and and that's yeah. a bill that you know, again, is another example of how much more we have to do on criminal justice reform to create a truly just system.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's like Families for Justice is healing. There's a, there's a lot of good groups working on that. I've been following and trying to go to those. um And then you know, in terms of the, you know, what what's the situation like? You know, I know that you've got you know MCI Shirley Concord and Susa Baranowski in your district. What is the situation now like with COVID? Um, I know there was quite a extreme lockdown for a while, and it may have been lifted more recently, but there's probably another spike. Like, what, what have you been seeing or what have you been hearing about the state of people in there and uh, getting them out, I guess?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is an example where early on, you know, we did press the governor to, you know, whether it's invoking medical parole, uh, whether it's, um, you know, the the parole board, uh, whether it's, you know, being more creative to say, you know, this group of prisoners that have committed, you know, um, nonviolent crimes or low level crimes, can't they, you know, get a monitor, you know, an ankle monitor and just, you know, be at home or, or go to a different uh, facility where they wouldn't have such exposure to COVID. And the governor, you know, Rejected, you know, all that and, and actually has been quite opposed to medical parole on people that are terminally ill, not right. not even related to the covid. Um, so, you know, right now, my sense is and I, you know, I haven't got an update today, but my sense is that, you know, covid has mostly been decreasing in most of the state prisons. But I know there's been some where, where there has been a, a hot spot, and, you know, I don't I don't think the governor is going to change. His view. So, you know, for me, it's making sure there's enough PPE and in in soap and um, you know disinfectant and and sanitizer in our in our prisons. Um, I do think it's important for you know visits to, to come back for volunteers to come back and just you know I think as as we've seen if you wear a mask and you're careful, then then you're not going to see a spread of COVID. And and I just you know I I did try to go to susie bernowski a few weeks ago to attend a hearing and, and unfortunately i was i was denied but but we are going to plan to go into the the prisons and just talk to talk to inmates and correction officers uh you know do that i would say probably sometime in november
0: okay that'd be i'll definitely want to follow that i feel like you have been trying a lot of this and it's been like blocked in um kind of ridiculous ways by sheriff's departments uh it's, it's, mm-hmm. it seemed a little heinous. I mean, what what can people do to help you with that?
2: Well, I I you know I I really think until we change the governor, you know the the culture is not going to change. Um, you know I, I think that there are well-meaning DOC EOPS uh, officials that are trying to create positive change, but um, you know whether it's you know leadership. Of correction officers, whether it's you know some management in DOC or whether it's the governor, they're just not not supporting any uh any any real change. So,
0: yeah, well, thank you for continuing the fight on that. Even though it's, uh, I mean, even since the criminal justice reform bill, not everything has actually gone according to law with regards to that. That's been extremely frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, hopefully uh, somebody will run. <laughs> mm-hmm. or I'll yep. just have to go back to Charlie Baker's lawn again
2: hang <laughs> out with right. the Stadies thank you for doing
0: that <laughs> you're invited Evan you've got to yep. come next time
1: I will it doesn't conflict with any other uh, prior engagements I'm always all about that uh, never been what is it Swamp Scott?
0: yeah it's very It's very, it was a very nice walk it was, I'm sure he's got a nice veranda lovely All right. Do you have any more questions before we sign off? Or is there any other anything else you want
1: to add, uh, Senator Eldridge? Do you have any plugs that we can uh, help you out with? Yeah. Any uh, big appearances you want to increase the attendance?
2: (laughs) No, uh, everything's uh, all said. I I would just say on the on the budget front is, you know, I'm certainly expressing my support to raise progressive taxes, you know, whether it's the Hero Coalition bill or closing corporate tax loopholes, And I do think that um, people need to hear, legislators need to hear more from their constituents on that. And also, um, you know, what they're seeing people experiencing in their communities around housing, around food insecurity, because, you know, I think until we hear more about that, you know, I'm concerned that there won't, won't be as bold of action in the legislature. So, but, uh, but thanks, thanks so much for having me. It's been a great, great conversation and appreciate all your, your activism and highlighting these, these efforts and these pieces of legislation.
0: Yeah, we, we really appreciate you calling in. Sorry for the uh, delay before, but then there was even more to talk about, so it worked out. And <laughs> we would love to have you back again. Um, I am extremely proud to be from Acton-Boxborough, you know, when it comes to uh, the people representing my parents' home, you know, parents' town politically at this point. Uh, I'm like, oh, well, you know what, Acton's cool, at Boxborough's cool, we got Jamie Eldridge. Uh, we I've run into people that, uh, you know, have a lot, a lot of things to say about you, too, like, you know, at protests and stuff, so... You know, keep doing yep. what you're doing. And uh, we're going to plug a few, uh, we're going to let you go and then plug a few uh, resources for people at risk of eviction before we sign off.
1: But a pleasure speaking to
2: you, Jamie. Good to talk to you both. Have a good rest of the night. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Thank you. Too.
0: Take you. care. Bye. Take
2: care. Thanks again.
1: What a nice guy.
0: I know. You thought Act Boxborough didn't exist.
1: I I knew where it was. I've driven. I've been in um, parts of his district before for some of my disaster relief stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, Let's see. My big plug for this week is this Wednesday, October 21st, 4 p.m. outside of the Bowling Building, uh, 2300 Washington Street in Roxbury. There's going to be a very large rally in support of the Boston Teachers Union. OK, basically in response to and this could be updated. So if I'm saying right now is update, I'm outdated. I apologize. But a deal struck by the city with the Boston Teachers Union in terms of what will be the COVID metrics, which determine faculty being in the buildings, which determine uh, the continuation of the rollout plan. And it looks like the city is going back on the deal they struck with the Boston Teachers Union. So they're actually doing an entire week of action. Uh, there's different social media things each day. But the big one I want to highlight again is this Wednesday, 4 p.m., uh, I will be there in support of teachers. So come say hi to me. Well,
0: maybe, I'll, maybe I will. Maybe You're I'm invited will.
1: too, and everyone else who hears the sound of my voice.
0: If you hear the sound of my voice, let's go support Boston Teachers Union. We should actually do a show on that at some point. Oh, yeah. And everything they're fighting can, for, that would be good. I can get
1: some people on for that one.
0: Yeah, that would be good. You got any plugs? Um, tomorrow, Boston Municipal Court. Somebody got arrested yesterday at a at the Super Happy Fun America Trump Nazi rally. Yeah, I saw
1: that. Two people did. Two I people think, did. I think one from our side.
0: Yes, one from our side got arrested, um, and uh, they will be having a court date tomorrow at 9 a.m. at the Boston Municipal Court. So it's the Bowling Building. What's the—maybe um, you just—I'm uh, trying to find the name of the building. BMC. Oops. BMC Court.
1: No, yeah, um, the Bowling Building, that's the— where the BPS headquarters is. So oh, it, it yeah, No, there.
0: I'm talking about a uh, new charm. Um,
1: and I also want to uh, give a shout out to Heidi, who is our number one fan in the chat.
0: Heidi, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, well, I mean, yeah. Shout out to Heidi. Heidi's been watching it all very closely.
1: We, um, we appreciate your comments. We do. I, 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 I've been tracking them. They've, they've been great. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah,
0: no, Heidi's been awesome. Um, commenting on everything. I love it. Really good input. I apologize if I didn't get to all their questions. So, uh, we have, yeah, there's a court date tomorrow. I'm like, I literally had it up here and now I feel like a am <laughs> at the BMC municipal court to support a uh, comrade who was arrested at, uh, counter protesting this rally. Um, go up, support, you know, make a stand. Hopefully the charges are dropped and everybody's cool.
1: And um, everyone, give give a lot of love to the the men and women behind the scenes who are making all the early voting and voting in yes uh, in Boston and Massachusetts possible. Um, just have your thoughts and prayers with those hardworking people. Yeah, especially some of some people that we know, especially
0: so. our now famous fearless producer <laughs> Herb Siglio, who has some. Sp- extremely huge muscles from uh, installing all of those early voting drop-off boxes yeah, all he, around He has, the the has city. to borrow
1: some of my uh, shirtless tees the other day. Yeah, just, uh... yeah.
0: You're going to have to start just, you know, you and Evan can just... <laughs> He's going
1: to start doing the rap-up music.
0: Yeah. <laughs> He's like, i <"I'm... laughs>
1: Can I plug something? Of course. Plug something. You guys want to learn about Warhammer lore? <laughs> Check out Baltimore's Warhammer Guide on YouTube. It's a great channel, and they you'll get to learn all about the Chaos Gods. It's awesome.
0: Oh, the I, I praise be the Chaos Gods! After all, all
1: right.
0: um, and before this gets too ridiculous, we're all very tired. There's gonna be more things to plug. Thanks, gonna <laughs> be housing rallies. Um, if you are at risk of eviction, call City Life Vita Urbana. Um, You know, they can hook you up with a lawyer. Uh, If you are served a notice to quit, do not leave. For the love of God, do not leave. Do not leave. Look, reach out on the internet. I will be posting more resources soon. There are a lot of resources to help you, and you should not be kicked out of your home during a pandemic.
1: They also legally can't forcibly evict you until January 1st. Yes,
0: and if they do, I mean, we are willing to come and deliver pizza and maybe, uh, you know, bring a sousaphone, a marching band. We'll make it fun. So, if, you know, we're, we, the people will be here to help you. Um, this is something that I'm extremely stressed about, and I want to stress that all of the energy that is going into this counter-protesting, which is important. I don't want it to have to be going into um, eviction blockades, but if it has to, we'll be there. There was actually so. a
1: training earlier today about that, but. We were doing a show. We were doing the show. So tune okay.
0: into that training. I, I, can you plug it?
1: Um, is it, it archived if they post it afterwards i'm not sure if this our group will post it but if they do post it i okay. will share it on my social media but thank you all for you don't need training live, to block an to. eviction you just need to show up i mean we'll train you there there are things yeah, <laughs> yeah there are things that you both should and should not do okay
0: <laughs> no ritual sacrifice
1: yeah none of that are you sure Mm-hmm. okay but, all right everyone
0: all right we're signing off uh donate to our patreon Patreon.com slash RentersRadio. Like and subscribe on all the social media to Renters Radio. I am Lauren Pespisa. I am Splendid Spoon. As myself on all other social media.
1: There you go. Evan George, Bostopian News. I'll be uh Twitch streaming tomorrow night, nine PM. Every Tuesday, nine PM. That's my time. All right. Alright, take care. Bye, Bye y'all.